Welcome to the Wealthsteading Podcast. This is episode 126. It's July 20th, 2015. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, if you've been watching the markets, you've seen the very spectacular rise that we've seen in the NASDAQ just over the last week and a half. We're going to talk about that in today's episode. Before we do that, I do want to mention that I've been trying to get caught up on my blog posts. I've been fairly prolific over there. Over the weekend, I think put up about three blogs. The article I put up on Saturday was entitled, Playing It Safe in the U.S. Dollar. That's the explanation of why I continue to be long the U.S. dollar. I talk about four or five factors that I think are going to be near-term trends. And I also have a chart over there showing you that shows that the U.S. dollar index is now firmly above its 100-day moving average. And then I also have on there uh, three or four key levels, which are where I consider resistance that the dollar has to break through. And so if you want to track my methodology and a little bit about what I might be doing in terms of deciding how long I hold on to my position, you want to check out that chart. Yesterday on Sunday, I put up an article about the NASDAQ, and that's what we're going to talk about in today's episode, so I won't go over that now. And then this morning, I put up an article about gold's correlation to China's GDP. I've been getting a lot of questions lately about what's going on with gold and where's the bottom going to be. If you've been following me for any length of time, you know that my opinion is is that as long as oil keeps going down, we're going to see gold as, as well as all the other commodities continue to decline, so I don't think we're at the bottom yet. I think you'll find that article that I wrote over there interesting. It's a short article, but what it shows is is a chart that compares the price of gold to the growth of Chinese GDP. I have that gold chart superimposed over China's GDP. It's almost amazing how they how they fit. You can see the run-up in gold prices and the max on gold occurred about the same time as the peak in Chinese GDP growth. And incidentally, the numbers I used for this weren't percentages, but I used actual U.S. dollars for how much their economy grew each year, year-over-year growth in, in nominal dollars. And you can see how they rose up together till 2011 and then how they've also declined together. The jury's still out as to how low or how much the Chinese GDP will continue to decline. But if it does contract further, that's going to have a major impact on all commodities, including oil and gold, which are all um, really tied together. And in that blog post that's entitled Gold Correlation to China GDP, I also have two links in there that'll take you to previous Wellsteading podcasts where I talk about gold's relationship to oil. And then some other blog post articles that I wrote on investablewealth.com that again compare the relationship between gold and oil. Not going to get into them this episode. I've already covered that. My opinion hasn't changed. If you haven't heard me talk about it, check those out. I think you might find them fascinating. A little bit different way of looking at things than maybe perhaps you've been led to believe. All that's available over at investablewealth.com. If you look under the section called Observations and Commentary, you'll find all my blog posts. You can sign up there for free email notices of any time I put out a new post, you'll get the complete blog article. Also be aware that anytime you can search either my websites, wealthsteading.com or investablewealth.com, there's a full archive of all my articles as well as all the podcasts. So let's talk about what's happening with the NASDAQ. Right now, I'm hearing a lot of people saying that this is another bubble getting ready to break, just like the dot-com bubble. Well, I don't think it's a bubble, but I do think it's brittle. If you remember my show last week, and perhaps even the week before, I might have mentioned it. 
I expected to see some type of an increase in the markets coming out of all the drama with what's going on in Greece. And then also once the Chinese government was able to stabilize the, the implosion of their stock market. Now, neither of these problems are fixed. As I've said before, whether Greece is in or out of the euro or whether they default or whether they don't default, the country of Greece is insolvent and they can't pay their debts. One way or another, the European Central Bank will be running their printing presses to pay for Greeks' past and future debts. So that's not going away. That's going to continue to be a problem. So anything that's happened here recently is just a short-term solution. And the same thing can be said about the Chinese stock market. That market has literally imploded. And although it's recovered in the last you know, six or seven trading sessions, that's been because of the extreme controls that the Chinese government has gone in there to prop it up. In some cases, they stopped trading altogether on some companies. In other cases, they stopped the, the release of initial public offerings. They've encouraged or perhaps even forced some investment companies, mutual fund companies, um, insurance companies to go in and buy stocks. For people that own more than a 5% share in a particular company, they're not allowing them to sell for at least six months. So there's a lot of monkey business going on over there. When the bottom fell out on it, they lost somewhere in the range of 3 to $4 trillion in the course of about three weeks. Now, again, some of that's been made up, but still that's a vast sum of money to lose when you consider that the economies in the developed world, like the fourth and the fifth largest economies, German, the German economy, the economy in Great Britain, their GDPs are only in the neighborhood of three and four trillion dollars. So that's how much wealth was wiped off the books in the Chinese stock market implosion. We don't fight the central banks when they come in to intervene in markets and in stocks. You have to get out of the way. You have to let them do what they're going to do because they own the printing presses and they can sustain and hold up these markets, but they can't do it forever. And as large as the Chinese stock market is, I think the problems will continue there and we'll see them resurface later on. These are all reasons why I'm very cautious buying into any equities, whether they be United States stocks or European or Asian stocks. I'm being very cautious right now. That's why I'm primarily in cash and invested in, in an exchange traded fund into the U.S. dollar. But I digress. Again, go over to investablewealth.com. Read my post about why I still like the dollar. But all this is related to the stock market. It's, it's in particular related to the NASDAQ. I expected the markets to rise up over the last week or so as the can was kicked down the road in both Greece and China. I am a little bit surprised, though, at how much we've seen the NASDAQ go up. The pharmaceutical and biotech stocks have had a nice run up. The banks have done well uh, recently. I expected those to continue. But really what we've seen break out over the past few days have been the, quote, growth technology stocks. And that's what I want to focus on in this episode. Now, as I started out saying, I don't believe this is like the dot-com bubble. Investors always get wrapped up in fighting the last war, just like we talk about the generals that they fight the last war, but the enemy changes its tactics. And as similar things happen in markets, in, in the free market, in stock markets, the underlying fundamentals are always the same. It's always about supply and demand. It's always about value and the expectation of profits. That part never changes, but just like the enemy changes its tactics, the malinvestments and the bubbles that form and the new problems that evolve are different than the previous ones that we'd gone through because people were aware of what happened in, in recent history. And so new problems surface up and people don't identify them right away. Well, in the late 90s and the early 2000s, when the NASDAQ ex exploded or imploded and lost all of its value, we call that the dot-com bubble. And the reason that bubble formed was because people were enamorated with the new technologies of the Internet, they thought there was going to be some new type of an economy. 
Alan Greenspan coined the phrase irrational exuberance, and people rushed in to buy stocks and companies that had no business plan, no sales, no profits, no anything. In some cases, they, you know, they were just a website. Well, that bubble built over a two or three year period, but it did pop and it popped hard. And in fact, it was only this last year, after nearly 15 years, that the NASDAQ got back to where it was in nominal terms. In inflation adjusted terms, it still hasn't gotten back to where it should be. That's how severe and how bad bubbles are. Now, I don't think we're in that right now. But as I mentioned, I do think the NASDAQ is very fragile or brittle, particularly in this recent run-up that we've just seen over the last week. And the reason for that is, is that a great deal of this run-up has been based on the performance of just a handful of stocks. In fact, if you look at the Russell 2000, that's the index of small capitalized companies. Well, the Russell 2000 has not performed well over this last week. It did have a, a slight recovery. Like the other indexes, it did dip because of the drama over Greece and China, but it went down harder and it hasn't come up as well. In fact, right now, the Russell 2000 is struggling to maintain its 50-day moving average. And that's at the same time when the NASDAQ, which is supposedly made up of small growth-type companies, well, it's at all-time highs. But that's because, as I mentioned, there's just a handful of companies, and these are very large, well-established, mega-large-cap technology companies, which are taking the NASDAQ on to new highs. Now, that in and of itself isn't a bad thing, but when you look at a solid rally or a solid uptrend in the market, it doesn't occur because a couple leaders break out. It occurs because there's a broad spectrum of stocks moving on to new highs. If you've listened to my past podcast, you've heard me talk about following the trend. And the reason that's so important is that over 70% of stocks do what the market's doing. So if the overall market is in a decline, if it's going down, usually over 70% of stocks will go down as well. The good stocks go down with the bad stocks. We know with the old expression that the rising tide lifts all boats. Well, that's true in markets. When we have an uptrend in a market, 70% or more of stocks go up. The bad stocks go up just like the good stocks do. That's why, to me, it's important to find market momentum and market direction because you don't have to be an Einstein at picking stocks that way. If you have a confirmed uptrend and you know that the market is solidly moving up, then about 7 out of 10 stocks that you pick are going to go up as well. Now, obviously, some are going to go up more than others, and you're always looking for the best performers. But it's always easier to go with the trend. You don't want to be a salmon swimming upstream. Well, in the market we're in right now, when we see the NASDAQ moving up, it isn't going up because 70% of stocks in the NASDAQ are going up. It's going up because a handful of very large stocks are going up. And you don't argue with the market. Hey, right now, if, you know, if you're invested in Facebook and Google, you've done very well. On, on last Friday, Google went up over 16%. But when these uptrends are limited to a handful of stocks, if, if in the next few days, as more earnings releases come out, if we, in you know, few days to few weeks, if we don't see more stocks following through and going on to new highs to keep up with Apple and Facebook and Google, then in my opinion, we could see a correction or a pullback because that expansion is just too shallow. Often when you get to a market top, you can identify it because only a handful of those stocks are going up. And when they do go up, they get exhausted. And there's nobody left to buy into them anymore, and no one wants to buy into the stocks that are lackluster. And that's why the uptrend falls apart. Are we seeing that right now in the NASDAQ? I don't know, but that's what I'm fearful of. Let's look at a few of these stocks that are rising up and causing the NASDAQ to go on to new highs. Now, I just mentioned that Google had risen up 16% last week. That's carried a lot of expectations over to some of these other stocks. 
Something to remember with Google. First of all, it's been underperforming for the last 12 to 16 months. You might have heard in the news that the reason it popped up on Friday was because that it beat earnings expectations. Well, that's true. And you remember something else that I said prior to these earning announcements coming out. I would mentioned to you that these earnings have been dumbed down. A year ago, or certainly at the end of fourth quarter of 2014, the prognosticators were saying that in 2015, we would see the S&P 500 corporate earnings growth would grow at at least 11%. Well, right now, they're forecasted to grow at something like 6 or 7%. So while 6 or 7% is still a solid number, it's nowhere near 11%. So that's oftentimes what you'll hear on Wall Street. Companies will come out, they'll revise their forecast down, they'll sandbag, they'll make them too low, the analysts will all go along with it. They'll revise their forecast. And then when the company comes out and beats the estimates, everything gets hyped up and they try and convince you that everything's wonderful. When in fact, the overall growth rate has decreased. And that's what we're seeing right now. So you will see a lot of hype over these next couple of weeks as these earnings come out. The big thing, though, in my opinion, that really drove the increase in, in Google stock last week was the fact that they have a new chief financial officer. She's a Wall Street insider. She came out and during the earnings announcement, she told Wall Street exactly what they wanted to hear was pretty much the fact that Google is going to get a handle on their expenses. They're not going to waste so much money on, you know, moonshot projects. They're going to be more frugal. They're going to pay more attention to the bottom line. That's what got all the news. That's what got everybody excited. And if that is really the case, that would be a good thing because Google wastes too much money. They spend like drunken congressmen. And I'll remain skeptical until I see that they really do go on for several more quarters where they have their spending under control. But the thing that worries me about Google overall, and this goes for many of the other stocks in the NASDAQ, even if we don't get around to talking about them, this thing I'm saying about Google applies to them as well. Google's core business is advertising. It's no more of a technology company than the New York Times is, is a manufacturing company because it prints newspapers. Okay, Google, yes, I understand that they use a lot of technology to bring us search and to bring us all the amazing products and services that they have out there. But at the end of the day, their core revenue, their profit all comes from advertising, just like ABC and CBS and the cable channel networks. They're not in the news business. They're not in the, quote, media business. They're in the advertising business. People don't pay CBS to get content. People watch it for free. It's funded by advertisers. That's the same thing with Facebook. It's the same thing with Google and Twitter and Yahoo and, you know, on and on. All these, all these type companies that we call, quote, tech companies. At their core, they're advertising companies. And although they've grown extremely well for a decade or more in the, in the case of companies like uh, Google and Yahoo, that growth is not going to go on exponentially growing because it's just cannibalizing advertising dollars from the old mainstream media. No new advertising dollars are being created. It's simply migration from TV and news, uh, newspaper and print ad, magazine ads that are going into the coffers of companies like Facebook and Yahoo and, and Google. So that at some point will taper off and come to an end. And this is much the same argument that I have with growth of emerging markets in China in particular. We're not seeing a slowdown in China's growth right now because of nefarious reasons. The growth in China now is slowing down because it just was unsustainable. They couldn't grow at 12 and 14% forever. China didn't really enter the industrial age until the late 70s or early 80s. So a lot of the growth that we saw them experience since the 1990s was catch-up growth. They were catching up and they were taking growth away from more developed countries because they had lower labor costs. 
because they had better factories and, and just a, a whole variety of reasons. We won't go into those for right now. But to just point out one quick example, let's just talk about footwear or shoes. It wasn't that the world was consuming exponential amounts of, of shoes and tennis shoes and, and women's shoes and, and men's business shoes. That wasn't the reason that, that China's footwear factories were growing. It's just the fact that they were taking market share from the factories that had previously been located in the United States or in Germany or in Italy. That business had just migrated to China. Well, eventually it had to taper off because people just aren't buying more shoes. There's just a finite amount of feet in the world. And at some point, you're only going to produce enough shoes to keep up with the birth rate. And since the overall global birth rate is tapering off, you can't have that exponential growth go on forever. It's just not sustainable. So that's the same thing that we're going to see in these tech companies that are focused on advertising. The other thing that concerns me or that I would worry for them in terms of advertising, in the old days, when you bought an ad on TV or in some type of a print format, you had no real way of knowing how successful that ad campaign was. I mean, people had internal metrics and things they tried to use, but they really didn't know exactly how many people that ad was, was reaching, how many people were seeing it, and then how many people followed through on it. They knew how much they spent, they knew how much airtime they purchased or how much ad space they purchased, and they knew what their sales were, but they never really knew the connection in between. Well, with internet and online marketing and mobile marketing, companies are now able to track that. They know not only how much ad space they're purchasing, but they know how many people are seeing it, you know, how many eyeballs are in front of it, how long people are viewing it, whether it gets clicked on or whether it doesn't, whether that, if it is clicked on, whether that content is either read or whether it's watched, and then how much of that goes on to someone actually clicking a buy button to make a purchase. That can all be measured almost down to a science now. And I think what people are finding out is that advertising isn't as effective as they think it was, or not as effective as Madison Avenue would have you believe. And that gets me back to Google's earnings announcement last week. No one seemed to notice the fact that, yes, although they did beat their earnings expectations, their revenues, their overall sales for the quarter were down, and the amount paid per click for their advertisements, that was down as well, and that's continuing to erode. Now, despite those facts, the stock still jumped up 16%. So you don't argue with the market, but those are things you want to be concerned with and why I think a lot of this rise in the NASDAQ is, is overhyped because long-term, this growth is not sustainable. It's going to peter out. Now, some of these companies aren't necessarily priced badly. Google has a earnings valuation, a price per earnings ratio of somewhere around 25. For a growth tech company, that's not bad at all. I will throw in the caveat about the fact that a lot of that enthusiasm and a lot of the good press they got was because, remember, they came out and said that their new CFO said that they're going to have a constraint on spending. That they're going to focus more on the bottom line by not spending so much. Well, when a growth company comes out and says that, that's usually an indication that they're no longer a growth company, that they're more of a, of a mature blue chip type company and that they're going to be run responsibly, and they're not going to have all these moonshot, big, audacious projects that they spend money on. You know, the driverless cars, the drone deliveries, the Google Glasses, all these other types of things that cost a lot of money and don't necessarily create any revenue. Now, we don't know exactly what they are aren't going to cut, and we don't know in the future that something like a Google Glass or, or some of the free products that they currently offer won't be something that they can market or monetize or create other ad dollars off of. That's why a company like Google invests in them. But that's also why they're growth companies. If they stop making those type of investments, if they act more like a mature company, then they'll deliver the results of a mature company. 
which is growth in the range of, you know, five to eight percent. And consequently, their valuation won't be at 25 times earnings. It'll be more like 15 or 16. And again, that's what you have to be worried about with this current expansion in the NASDAQ. It isn't that it's a dot-com bubble where it's not based on a solid foundation. Companies like Facebook and Google, they are good, strong companies with excellent earnings, but they maybe are not worth the valuations that people are paying for them because that growth won't continue forever. And let me give an example by what I mean by that growth can't last forever. Gilead Sciences, they're a company that makes pharmaceuticals, biotech type products. They've had some extremely successful products in recent years. Uh, I believe they had an, an HIV treatment, uh, but I think what they're best known for is their hepatitis drugs. Now, this company has done so well and so phenomenal that I think it's been in the last three and a half to four years, their stock price has gone up about a thousand times, which is phenomenal. Had you owned them, say, back in you know 2011 or 2012 and, you, and that you've held on to them this long. But they haven't done that great in recent quarters because even though they've had phenomenal earnings, they're making something in the order of, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten dollars a share, something like that. The problem is, is that their valuations are not expanding. They're contracting. So here's what I mean by this. Had you bought the stock four or five years ago when it was making just pennies, then you would have been paying a huge premium to own that stock. The price per earning ratio that you would have paid would have been somewhere in the neighborhood of, say, 40 or 50 times earnings back in, say, 2011. Now, over the years, as these drugs have gotten FDA approval and as they've come out, and, and really not over these years, really over the last, say, maybe 12 months, the company's earnings have skyrocketed. They've gone from, you know, from earning pennies to earning seven, eight, nine dollars a share. But the price has stayed stable or possibly even come down, the price of the stock. So you've had valuation contraction, even though you've had profit expansion. So when three or four years ago, you were paying 40 or 50 times earnings to own that stock, well, today you can buy this stock for 12 times earnings. That's right, 12 times earnings. So all the people that bought it over the last year or so, that thought that they were getting into this growth company because the, the earnings were just skyrocketing, well, what they didn't understand was that it was already priced into the stock stock was already fully priced. It was already richly priced. And so the earnings caught up to what the stock was selling for. Now with Gilead, is, is it going to turn around? Is it going to consolidate here and then go on to make new earnings? Well, it will if it can create more drugs or more pharmaceuticals that are used in new applications, or if it can you know, find new customers for, for its existing drugs. But think about it, that the, their hepatitis treatment can be related back to Amazon's advertising. You see, there's a finite number of cases of hepatitis every year. And so its initial growth expanded so much because it was a better alternative to the previous treatments for hepatitis. But once all those patients use the Gilead method and that they're cured, well, other than maybe some maintenance drugs, the sales taper off. There's only so many people that contract hepatitis. And so that explosive exponential growth, that thousand percent increase that Gilead stock saw over the last four or five years, well, that can't grow forever unless they have more drugs in the pipeline. And right now it's apparently evident that they don't or else the stock wouldn't be selling at such a low premium of only 12 times earnings. That same thing that I just illustrated there with Gilead, that can occur to Google or Yahoo or Facebook or any of these other high-tech type advertising companies once that migration of ads tapers off. And you're not going to see these high premiums. Now, I mentioned that Google's was fairly reasonable, only 25 or so times earnings, but other companies are extremely high. 
Yahoo, for example, I think it's undisputable that, that Google has much better products and services that Yahoo does, and yet Yahoo's trading for a premium of 30 times earnings. I don't see how that can be sustained now that they really don't have a part of, of uh, Alibaba, the, the Chinese search company like they had before. You've got to believe that that's got to, that premium has to come down. And what about Twitter? Twitter has a price per earnings ratio of 162 times forward earnings. 162. I can see the business model that's, that a company like Facebook has because it has so much intimate data on not only its users, but, but its users' preferences and then its users' friends and, and things like that. It, it's everything from the pictures they post to, to the hobbies they're in and all these different things. And they've been collecting that data for, you know, like a decade. But Twitter is a different animal. Twitter is mostly popular because it's so widely used by people in the media. And it's a great form for breaking news and things like that. But I just don't see how it's the same real estate as Facebook. And yet, its price per earnings ratio is 162. That stock price could decrease by three times and it, could, it would still be expensive. Now, let's talk about a company like Amazon. Obviously, they're, they're not into just the advertising space. They're, they're the middleman. They're a retailer. They're the you know, largest online retailer. And they've done a phenomenal job. They're a fantastic company. I use their services all the time. But their market capitalization is like $230 billion. That's about the size of a country, say, uh, I don't know, maybe the size of Ireland, which is phenomenal. And again, it's a great company. I use their services. I, I love what they do. But they're not making any profit. Like Google, they've been enamorated with spending money, spending money like a drunken congressman. Billions of dollars in sales, and they don't make a profit. That's a problem. At some point, investors get tired of investing a company that has a stock that's trading, you know, $500 a share, and they're not making any money. Amazon is one of those stocks that's gone on to make new highs, and it, it's driving the NASDAQ to new highs. But if it isn't profitable, that high stock price can't be maintained. The same thing is, is true of another company that's a large cap that's driving that NASDAQ onto new highs, and that's Apple. And again, I have nothing against Apple over the last you know 20 years. I've been in and out of their stock. I've made a lot of money on it. I use their products. I think they're a phenomenal company, and I actually think they're very fairly priced. Their valuation is only 16 times earnings. Apple consistently gets underrated in their valuations. But there's a reason for that, and that's that their products are limiting. As much as people love them and as much as a franchise they have, the PC, the tablet, the laptop market, they don't have the growth that they used to have. And things like the streaming music and the iTunes store, although they're profitable, they're not seeing the growth that would be expected from some of these growth companies, from a realistic perspective anyways. The main driver over at Apple for the last 10 years or so has been the iPhone. And just like advertising or just like hepatitis drugs, eventually that market gets tapped out. Now, what really helped Apple over the last year or two was the fact that it expanded in China. A great deal, a large amount of the iPhone 6 sales occurred in China. That was extremely good news for Apple and why we saw the stock shoot up, I don't know, 25, 30%. But just look back a couple weeks ago when we were going through this Chinese implosion. What happened to Apple's stock? It got hit harder than most. I think peak to trough, Apple was down something like 15, 18% over a period of about six weeks. A lot of that had to do with the scare in China. And remember, I'm not in the camp believing that, that all that's blown over and that the government intervention has solved all the problems. The consumer over there, the investor over there, the people that were they're putting their life savings into the Shanghai and the Shenzhen stock market, 
when those prices dropped, you know, 30 some percent and they lost, you know, collectively through the market three to three and a half, three point eight trillion dollars. That was money that can't be spent on other products and services, products and services in particular like iPhones. And that's why Apple stock took a big hit. Now it has recovered. But again, how many iPhones do you think they're going to sell in China next year? I'm cynical. I don't think they're going to hit the same records that they did this year. And so consequently, I think that's why their stock is trading at such a low multiple. The problems that we're seeing in the NASDAQ, stocks like Twitter that have over 160 times earnings, and in, in my opinion, kind of a sketchy business model or a sketchy future, that's the same thing we're, we're seeing in China. And I'm going to tie this all back to China, and then we'll wrap up this episode. I read today in a Bloomberg article that talked about the valuations, the collective valuations of stocks on the Shenzhen and Shanghai markets in China. Now, I've seen different numbers and numbers all over the map, and it's, it's hard to see who you can believe. But in the latest article I, I read, Bloomberg said that their estimate was that valuations on the Chinese stock market were something like 160 times earnings. So basically the same thing we're seeing for Twitter. Now, these are small, obscure Chinese companies, names that you wouldn't even recognize, that none of us would recognize. Many of them probably not profitable, maybe without even having any sales. And while I don't think our NASDAQ here in the United States is a bubble like the dot-com bubble that we saw back in, in 2000, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if the Shenzhen and the Shanghai stock markets were a bubble. And again, if that thing bursts, it's going to have an impact not only in China and in Asia and possibly with a great deal of currency crisis, but it's going to carry over to commodities, commodity prices. In some cases, are all already somewhere between 6 to 12-year lows, depending on the commodity. The lowest prices we've seen in some cases going back you know, to 2002. That's because of lack of growth in China and India. Now, it doesn't mean that they're not growing. It means that their growth rates are slowing down. Again, check out that chart I have over at investablewealth.com where I show gold's relationship to the Chinese GDP. Even though China may grow at 6 or 7% this year, the nominal dollars are significantly less from the amount they grew back in, say, 2011 or 2012. That growth was not sustainable as a result of malinvestments, overcapacity, we're currently seeing a collapse in our commodity prices. And right now, I don't know how it's going to turn out. I don't know if those commodity prices are going to hit a bottom anytime soon and then see the economy grow into that capacity. If they do in the next, say, five, six months, that'll be a great thing and everything will be stable. But if they don't, we're going to see a real problem in global growth. And regardless of what the Federal Reserve does or anybody else, I don't see how that's going to insulate the U.S. equities market. So again, that's why I remain cautious. I'm concerned that we might be at a market top. I don't want to get in and have the carpet pulled out from under me. Now remember, I never offer advice or recommendations in this podcast. I just tell you what's on my mind. I give you a, a, a window into some of the things I'm doing, the trades I'm making. But you have to make your own choices. I'm not offering any recommendations. As always, though, I do appreciate you listening. Until the next episode, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best of returns.